0: Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare. This week, Derek, Daywan Smith, and I will be discussing The Autopsy of Jane Doe, one of my favorite recent horror movies. You should introduce yourself. My name is Aaron Mansfield, by the way. Rookie mistake. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, we're only, what, five, six episodes into this? It's okay. <laughs> um at the end of the day, we are the Scaredy Cats, and that's all that matters. At the time of this uh,
1: recording, which by the time you hear this, it might be a couple months away, uh, it is October, and we are in full Scaredy Cats mode here. Um, I'm starting to like horror movies more since even though we're we've only done five or six of these i i'm i'm learning i'm getting a new appreciation of horror movies i also want to say go fuck yourself mansfield because the autopsy of jane doe really got under my skin and i had yeah. some nightmares from it so
0: but i'm jumping ahead well let's talk briefly about some scary stuff so We kind of go on some tangents every episode and just talk about some random idea of, like, what scares us. So we've discussed in the past irrational fears. Um, We've also discussed what types of things, like, you know, where, like, the origins of our love for spooky stuff comes from. This movie specifically is all about medical stuff, kind of. Yep. So what I want is to hear some spoopy stories you might have from your time working in the uh, medical industry.
1: All right, yeah. So another thing that kind of got under my skin about this movie is I've handled deceased patients. At the time, it was just kind of like business. I don't mean to dehumanize anything, but when you're working in the health industry, you kind of just have to get the job done, make sure that the family is taken care of, The patient's taken care of and you just got to do your job and then you deal with whatever emotional or whatever you want to call it fallout on your own. And so at the time, like anytime I handled a deceased patient, it was just kind of like cleaning things up, making sure it looks presentable, um, making sure that they can get transferred to the morgue and everything. And it was always a rough time. I will say I I remember hearing and I think it was an old last podcast episode or or something where like listeners called in and, and talked about their spoopy stories. And one this I think it was like an ER nurse called in and said that like when they're coding a patient and the patient dies, like if somebody in the room mentions that they feel like somebody just left the room or something like brushed by them or like a cold wind passed by them, one of the ER doctors would literally call it right there if like All the medical evidence also supported that they're not coming back. And there is kind of a vibe to that, because I have been also part of codes. Um, Sometimes you you can't save the patient, it's just nothing you can do about it. And there is definitely a vibe of like, Elvis has left the building. Huh. Yeah, which is always creepy. Like an energy has just kind
0: of been released, or left, or whatever you want to call it. Do you think it's more that, or do you think it's kind of like one of those moments where everybody in the room kind of collectively has a connection, and they just all like everybody feels that that's the case so it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling thing where everybody kind of looks at each other and kind of all silently agrees that that's what's happening and not necessarily like there is a presence that's leaving you know what i mean Right. I think my
1: rational brain is in more agreement with that. I do believe that in a scientific way, I do believe that our brains can sometimes, whether it's through patterns or whatever, uh, can collectively unconsciously do weird shit like that. And I think, I think there is some validity to what you said, but then there also is a small part of me that almost is like, well, it, Maybe it's some kind of energy or presence that literally is leaving as well. Like it's a combination of both things um, that our brains are kind of tuned to that sort of thing. Um, It's kind of like when you wander through a graveyard or go to a memorial where death was a big thing. You feel just that heaviness Um, and whether or not it's your unconsciousness, like realizing the severity of this place or whether it's an actual Energy there, you know, I don't know if that's really relevant, but it's it's creepy feeling either way. Yeah, totally. But my own. So there were a few people on where I worked at who believe that the unit was haunted. We worked in an ICU. It was a very heavy duty ICU. We saw some really complicated stuff. Like I said, you can't save every patient all the time. Sometimes people just, when it's their time to die, it's their time to die. And so a lot of the nurses and e- even a couple of the other staff members thought that the unit was haunted. So one night I was working all the way in the back of the unit and they would used to put patients back there that weren't necessarily super sick. Like the ones that were on their way out basically Yeah. to make room for the ones more up front because it was easier to get to the front of the unit for, like, doctors in case they needed to, like, respond to emergencies. And I was working by myself. I'd been a nurse for several months at that point. I was still pretty new, but I was good to go in terms of handling a couple patients that were relatively stable. And so I was back there by myself. It was a slow night. A lot of the rooms in between the back and the front were empty. So I kind of had to walk a ways to get to, like, the nursing stations and get to where I got my medicines and everything for the the patients. So I remember when I walked on shift, the first thing you do, if you have the time to, is you check all the empty rooms that, like, are in your station or in your area and make sure that they're cleaned up and ready to go in case, like, an admit comes in. So that's the first thing I, I did because it was a slow night. My patients didn't need to be checked on right away. So I went to, I just kind of walked through each room, made sure everything was off. Our unit director was a stickler about this. So like, as far as I remembered, none of the screens were on, everything was turned off, everything was wrapped up, good to go. Later on that night, I leave the station to go get some meds for my patients. And as I'm walking back, I'm kind of like looking down and looking at the meds, making sure I have the right stuff. I hear this crashing noise and in my head. I'm like, oh shit, I hope a patient's okay. So I sprint to the back. And this this noise was not loud enough to carry to the front, so I was the only one who responded. So I walk back there, walk into the rooms of my patients. They're either asleep or the family members that are also there staying the night are either asleep or they said that it's not their room. They didn't because they also heard the same noise I did. So I'm like walking around like, what the hell caused that? Out of the corner of my eye, one of the like the corner empty rooms, I noticed that the TV is on and the monitor is on. And I'm like, okay, maybe I just like in a rush or whatever maybe I just missed this and maybe I just missed these two things being on I didn't think anything of it so I walked into the room to turn them off as I walked in the room I noticed there was a tape laying on the ground and it was uh it was kind of a child services of the hospital would donate tapes and movies to any kids staying overnight or whatever and it was one of those tapes. When you're done cleaning up the room, you're supposed to like take any toys or tapes that were donated by them and put it in a basket to go back to the child services. So I pick up the tape, and I'm as I'm walking back to like go put it into the basket up at the front of the unit. I was just like, you know what? Let me try something. So I put the tape back into the uh, VCR, and then I hit eject. And the tape comes out. I sit there and let it sit there for like 30 seconds or whatever. Then the tape gets sucked back into the VCR. I hit eject again and I pull it out. And not that it's hard to get out of the VCR, but you need some kind of like pulling, like a person needs to pull the tape out for it to come out. So I was like, okay, this tape came out of the VCR, fell to the floor, somebody's screwing with me. So I grab the tape, I turn everything off and I go back up to the front of the unit and I'm like, all right. Which one of y'all was it? And they're like, what are you talking about? And I show them the tape. I'm like, this tape ejected itself in one of the rooms. I don't know if one of y'all walked back there when I wasn't looking. And they're like, we haven't been back there in about an hour. Charge nurse didn't check on me. And I would have known if somebody back, like, cause it was a, a one hallway to and from. So I would have known or seen somebody come and go yeah, uh, or at least heard them because it, you can't really sneak around this place. I was like, okay. And then without like missing a beat, one of the doctors or nurse practitioners or whoever they were sitting at, at one of the computers just charting, didn't even look up from the computer. They were just like, oh, it's probably just one of the ghosts. And I'm like, I shake my head. I'm like ghosts what in the fuck are y'all talking about and then like they all started because these all these nurses and doctors and everybody who were up at the front all had been working on the unit for a couple of years at least or more they were all like oh yeah this place is haunted as shit <laughs> and i'm just like wait what and uh, yeah some of the doctors are like typically on a uh, really really busy nights if doctors can't go to the call room to sleep it, or like they don't want to be too far away from the unit they would go to like one of the empty rooms and sleep. And so the doctor who was on was started telling me stories about how like, oh yeah, I've been back there like to sleep in one of the empty rooms and weird shit happens all the time. And I just ignore it and go to sleep. I'm like, okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing this information for with me now.
0: Yeah. Nope.
1: Yeah. So again, I don't know if I believe any of that, but it was one of the more unexplainable things that happened to me personally. There have been other moments where a nurse called me into the room. Like I heard something hit the floor and the nurse called me into the room like yelling and told me that a medicine bottle that they had on like the nursing tray like literally picked itself up and then fell on the floor or got thrown to the floor. There have been other moments of patient family members saying that like they've seen things Move around like kids that aren't there. Again, I don't know if I leave any credence to any of this, but... uh but yeah, hospital hauntings and medical hauntings are fascinating to me. I've looked up a few stories on them after those events, and they're always really fun reads. And probably the reason why, a little bit of the reason why this movie got a, under my skin. Yeah,
0: hospitals in general are just already really unsettling, scary places. So that is that is what it is, and you've already got that atmosphere in your head. And for the record, like I 100% come down on. You know, this is all stuff that we psychically build up in our own minds and convince ourselves of. I don't believe in any of this. I am going to be that guy in the horror movie one of these days that's just like, Whoa, there are ghosts! I didn't believe it before! (laughs) But for now... It is what it is, but a hospital is already such a volatile and unsettling yeah. place that I can understand why those things seem to happen more often because you're constantly surrounded by so much negative emotion. That does impress on you. You know, I'm not talking about like actual like Ghostbusters 2 level goop waves. (laughs) But being around other people who are upset makes you upset. You know, it's just like my job when I have to deal with angry customers all day long. I come home kind of grumpy. So it's the same way. You just, you're around so much negative energy, whether it's grief or anger or sadness, just there's so much of that that presses on you throughout the day. And being in a very weirdly oppressive and, I can't think of a word for it, but the like nature of a hospital combines with that and I can see why like there's a much higher rate of these kinds of things happening or so they you know seem to be happening um just because of the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, a couple of things on that point too. Hospital instantly kinda makes Any kind of scary movie or scary situation worse, uh, in my opinion. Or not worse, but more scary, more better, I guess. I don't know what the proper way to say that is.
0: Halloween 2. Yes.
1: Exorcist 3. Yes. So those were the two that popped in my mind immediately. I have not seen Exorcist 3. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I've seen Halloween 2. Obviously, I think the first Halloween, the original Halloween, is a better movie. And it does more for the horror genre in general. Halloween 2 is a lot creepier to me because it takes place in a hospital. Exorcist 3 is a lot creepier to me than the original Exorcist because it takes place in a hospital. Because I've seen that freaking jump scare where, like, the nurse at the nursing station, where the person with the fucking uh, blades or whatever comes, like, walking out right behind her. Uh, I saw it through memes, actually. That's how I found out about that jump scare is, is a recent meme came out with, with using that person following people. And we will definitely cover probably all those movies down the line. I, I think on our list right now, Exorcist 3 is on there. And I haven't seen the original Halloween and Halloween 2 and probably since I was a teenager. So I would love to revisit those movies. And then my other thing too was, like you were saying, I think if these hauntings, quote unquote, or these weird occurrences that are unexplainable, I think there are three causes possible causes to it the one that I probably think is the most realistic and and the one that's probably true is like you were saying, it's kind of a collective unconsciousness sort of thing, like we are the ones creating this almost like illusion, mind over matter sort of thing. And honestly, that's just as scary as if it's an actual ghost doing it, because we trust our minds and our brains so much on a daily basis every single second of the day. And when our own mind starts to betray us, that's truly terrifying. Yeah. Then my second theory is that it's history replaying itself, like if enough powerful moments and enough death or suffering or whatever or even positivity happens in one area it's almost like the area kind of absorbs that energy and it's like history replaying itself i forget who says that hauntings are just history replaying itself but it, it it's kind of that idea and then my third <laughs> my third theory is that no it's energy of people passed away it's spooks it's ghosts whatever you want to call it and maybe it's a combination of all three or a combination of two of those three or, or whatever. But again, I don't think it's important. It, it's fun to think about. I love reading about it. But I, I, I think it's scary, whatever's causing it, whether it's our own minds or whether it's an actual ghost. It's scary either way.
0: Yeah. Taking a sidestep. Um, also related to this movie, creepy instances of weird music that just randomly happens in your life. The only story that I really have from my life that's anywhere near being oopy spoopy. There was a day when I was in high school. I can't remember what we were doing that day, but we had been out. I say we like my mom, myself, and my brothers. Like we had all gone like shopping at the mall or something. And we came home, and this was years ago, so this was when you had a landline in your house and you had an answering machine, right? You would just have the habit of going and checking your answering machine every time that you got back from somewhere. You know, you'd always have the little flashing number to show you when you had missed calls. Um, so my mom throws on the answer machine. One was something innocuous. You know, it was maybe like the dentist's office reminding us about an appointment or, you know, one of the like schools for my brothers, like reminding them about like a parent event or something. And then the next one starts and it's very staticky and there's just lots of that like crunchy static and you just lightly hear. Like an old lady or maybe a young kid singing Amazing Grace. Holy shit! (laughs) I'm sure it was probably just some local church robocalling and they just had like a bad recording because their robocall system probably only half worked. But it was just static with like a little bit of like Oh my, hey, Grace! Just, like, warbling, kind of out of out of tune <laughs> in the background with this static. And I remember my mom and I both just standing there looking at each other, being like, what the fuck is this? It doesn't even finish, and it just kind of gets to, like, a moment where it gets more staticky, and the recording kind of starts to get weird, and then all of a sudden it just ends with, like, a loud screech. Just... And then it cuts out. And both of us are just like, well, hmm, okay. (laughs) Delete. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only spoopy thing in my life that's ever actually happened. But even then, you know, we just chalked it up to, you know, it was probably just some weird Pentecostal churches, robocall system, and... It was having problems or something, but it was just the straight, I mean, either that it was like straight up some like escaped mental patient who was just, you know, sitting in front of a phone book calling people. So I have no idea.
1: Oh man, that's such a good idea or such a good prank. At least, uh, it would have been in the nineties. You can't really do it now, but, uh, but to sit at a, at a phone booth and just dial down the line of people in the phone book, just doing
0: shit like that, just to creep them out. Yeah, and I'm sure there's probably some way to still pull off that prank. I think it's just one of those, like, since everybody has a cell phone now, and it has caller ID, and yeah, there are ways that you can, like, trick the caller ID into showing, like, no caller ID, right? I just don't think it's a thing that kids think to do anymore, like kids did when we were our age. I just don't think that's a thing. All of these movies, like, When a Stranger Calls and Scream, the whole, like, where are you? uh i'm at home oh really i'm at your home too like all of that spookiness is just not a thing anymore because like oh hello where are you i'm at home talking on my cell phone i'm in your cell phone too what okay sure so kids just don't think to do that anymore like prank calling is just not as much a thing at least like I haven't been prank called in years you just don't hear about it that much anymore for some reason but yeah either way I mean that was like the only spooky thing that I can think of in my life directly that's ever happened but again totally plays into uh some of the atmosphere of this movie we're about to talk about so Real quick before we actually get started with uh, the discussion of the movie, let's briefly mention anything that we've uh, seen, watched, read lately, etc. What have you got?
1: Uh, Not necessarily a scary movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it does deal with kind of the macabre, and
0: I did text you a good
1: bit about this. I finally saw uh, Coco Yes. and holy shit that hit me right in the feels so hard not not at all a
0: horror no not at all a horror movie like but it's it's dia de los muertos it's 100 like part of the season for yeah,
1: sure it's day of the it, it, the whole movie is a celebration of day of the dead i love the holiday i love learning about it i love reading about it it's such an interesting tradition and just a fascinating way to mourn and respect the dead and remember the dead but the movie itself is just beautiful the music is great totally the characters are fantastic the voice acting is top-notch and holy shit did I, was i weeping like a yep baby. Yep. During that movie, the climax of the film, I like got me so hard. It hit me so hard that I like, I'm not afraid to admit it. I was I cried a bit. Pixar really does not do too much wrong. In fact, they, most of the stuff they do is just out of this world good. And as good as Pixar is, Coco might be up there in my favorite as my favorite Pixar movie now. Uh, I have to kind of think about that for a while, let it digest.
0: But god damn, was it such a good movie. Yeah, it's definitely in my Pixar top five now for sure i think that and inside out are probably the i mean i would almost say like the only two really good movies in the last 10 years they've had a lot of sequels and a lot of random stuff like the good dinosaur come out which you know whatever but that movie is fantastic and yeah, I, my wife and I got married late October. Um, so when we went on our honeymoon to Mexico, it was right around Halloween time when Dia de los Muertos was starting. So we actually stayed an extra two days on our honeymoon just to participate in some stuff that was going on. It was so worth it. I mean, we, like, we kind of looked at each other and we like, you know, we're not going to have another opportunity to be down here during this time. So why not just go ahead and stay? And that way we can, like, experience it and see it. And it was so worth it to see such a huge national cultural holiday and be part of it. Not, I guess not be part of it. Like, we didn't participate in anything necessarily, but just to be there and observe and be part of other people's traditions and really see how other people celebrate life it was really really fantastic so then having seen Coco a year later that was even more impactful because we really knew like everything that was going on in Coco like we knew what all the like practices were and the traditions and all the symbolism so it was a really really great experience and yes yeah, so I I was bawling like a fucking baby in theater so definitely great yeah
1: god just thinking about it I, I watched it several days ago maybe a week at this point and I'm still just like it's still fresh in my mind it's still just kind of like tugging at my heartstrings
0: it's good I've just been mostly catching up on I say catching up like I've just been watching a lot of movies in my downtime mostly stuff that i've either seen already just from a comfort food standpoint it's good to rewatch, or things that i don't really have to pay a lot of attention to so things like sleepaway camp two and three the ones with uh bruce springsteen's sister I didn't even realize they made sequels to that movie. (laughs) They did, and it's not the same people. So that's kind of the thing. Like, those movies literally just followed the slasher formula of here's a bunch of campers, let's kill them off. But it has none of that, like, weird Freudian insanity that the first movie has. It's also one of those examples of, oh yeah, we're all teenagers, we're teenagers, and they're all, like, 30. The first movie is interesting because it's actually kids you know like there's maybe one or two of the teens at the camp who are older than teenage but it's all kids and there's so much weird freudian bullshit going on in that first movie but the sequels yeah it's just a bunch of 30 year olds like with their hair teased up running around acting like teenagers they're fun enough but they're definitely not great i also watched pie whack it which was fun it wasn't super interesting or original but i thought it was competently made enough i re-watched a couple of movies with patrick bromley from f this movie's commentary I watched invaders from mars by toby hooper uh, which is super fun i remember watching that one a lot when i was a kid growing up because it was always on cable i also watched friday the 13th part 5 which is delightful in the most trashy way that's another one of those where oh guess what it's not actually jason Voorhees. surprise surprise but there's like a weird redneck family, and the characters in that one are bananas. Um, that's just such a movie full of strange choices. Beyond that, I'm currently listening to Revival by Stephen King, which is pretty good. I'm enjoying it so far. I hear that the ending of that one is bananas, so I'm, I'm kind of waiting to get to that.
1: And going back to like after that, F this movie crew and and patrick bromley i i did listen to the death spa commentary just kind of while i was cooking and stuff like that and that movie sounds
0: bananas just from their own commentary you listened to the commentary track but you didn't watch the movie no i haven't watched the movie holy shit I want to go
1: back and watch the movie with the commentary again. I just like. You need to. I got caught up on all my podcasts, and it was really like the literally the only one that was like kind of brand new out of any of the mainstay podcasts I listen to. So I just downloaded it and put it on. I wanted to listen to something while I was cooking, and just listening to their commentary really makes me want to go watch it now.
0: Yeah, and it's unfortunate because. That movie has been on Amazon Prime streaming for months. And now, as soon as they put out that commentary, it's gone. So... That's kind of disappointing. I watched it when it was on Amazon Prime a few months ago. And yeah, that movie is something else. So it's very much like Gremlins 2, where it's the like <laughs> late 80s impression of what smart technology today is going to look like in our lives. Um, so the whole gym is just tricked out with all of this like smart technology to help you work out better. But it's just dumb shit. Like there's cameras everywhere and doors open automatically. But then also they have, like, temperature regulators on the showers that can go from, like, shower temperature to boil-you-fucking-alive temperature. And it has some pretty awesome gore gags in it, so you should definitely try to check that one out if you can.
1: Fuck yeah, I do, I do. want one, one of my favorite things was that they kept bringing up, like, everything the
0: computers did. Like, yeah.
1: oh, the computers somehow fixed the tile in the ceiling! Just... I,
0: I'm gonna have to go back and watch it. I'm just gonna have to like pay and rent the movie off Amazon or something like that, and just rewatch it so I can listen to the commentary because I've I've not listened to it yet. So beyond that, I think that's kind of all I've really been involved in so far. So let's get to talking about the autopsy of Jane Doe. Right off the bat, I will say this is a movie that we are going to have to kind of give some initial impressions of and then if you're at all interested in watching it you need to stop and you need to go watch it because we cannot really get into talking about this movie without really getting into some massive spoilers because every single bit of this movie plays into the plot So, general overview real quick just to kind of give you an idea and then you can stop this movie is about a father and son uh, mortician team, and they are brought the body of a young girl who was found under very suspicious circumstances, and she is a Jane Doe, so they have no idea who she is. But because the local police need answers on this crazy situation, um, they basically just ask them to put a rush job in and do this autopsy real quick. That's basically it. You know, that's all you need to know. Stop here go watch the movie.
1: And just real quick too, I'll kind of give my initial impressions for you cowards out there like me. If this is your first movie, uh, don't watch it. If this is fr- going to be your first horror movie to try and break, <laughs> break, you, in, <laughs> trying to break you in to uh, wanting to enjoy horror, but you want to watch something that's a little more low-key and kind of easier way into horror, don't start with this one. Maybe watch this one. Like I did five, six movies in once you've like kind of started getting a little bit of a thick skin. But even then, there are jump scares in this and there are effective jump scares in this. And what I will say is while i'm not a fan of the jump scare i've said that many times and i'm not a fan of how modern horror seems to really lean into it this movie has doesn't have like 20 jump scares it has it has a handful there there's like maybe one or two that are random and like i felt were not needed but there are all the other ones like especially in the second half of the movie are very well earned in my opinion and just you are on the edge of your seat the entire time the movie kind of draws you in draws you in draws you in and then bam hits you with something that's like super fucking creepy these jump scares aren't just those ones where it's just like, Oh, it happens. And then, like for a couple seconds, you're scared and then you move on. No, like the jump scare happens and then whatever creepy shit was happening just escalates from there. <laughs> so like a body will show up on screen and then like it'll continue like, like getting worse from there all in the same scene it's a decent movie from uh, i definitely held my attention start to finish it is it is kind of like uh again would you say this is a indie horror movie or did it get a theatrical release do you um so this
0: movie did debut at the toronto film festival okay and i'm sure that it probably got a limited theatrical release later that year but i seem to remember like literally buying this movie on Blu-ray maybe just like a month or two after it supposedly had like come out in theaters so maybe this was a day and date release where it was available on all platforms at the same time because the distributor didn't want to dump a whole lot into like theatrical but I definitely don't remember it being in theaters why yeah
1: I, I'd heard about this movie as well but I'd heard about it through I don't know like the same circles that like you and like the same entertainment circles that you and I follow whether it be like Bloody discovery F this movie, the last podcast, people.
0: So I wouldn't necessarily call it indie, but it's not like a big studio movie. This does have like actual stars in it and it does have money and it does have a director who's been kind of buzzworthy since his breakout movie. So I wouldn't, I don't know that I would call it indie, but it's not like a major studio movie.
1: Yeah, it didn't feel like an indie horror movie. It just felt like a straight up horror movie. So again, for you scaredy cats out there, it is a supernatural horror movie. It has quite a few jump scares in it in comparison to what we reviewed in the past. And like, like Mansfield was saying, unlike any of the other movies that we reviewed so far, this one leans heavily in spoilers. So again, if there is going to be a movie that you, don't want to be spoiled on Stop right here and go watch it. It's a solid movie. I'd give it like an eight point five or nine, and as far as scariness goes, I would give it a fuck you, Mansfield, for making me watch this out of ten.
0: <laughs> yeah. So first of all, the two stars that I mentioned are Emil Hirsch as Austin Tilden and Brian Cox as his father, Tommy Tilden. They own a mortuary, and this is a mortuary that's been in their family for decades. Emil Hirsch says, you know, it's been through three generations, I guess you can assume that he's probably the fourth generation lined up. So they are the two primary stars of this movie, along with Olwen Kelly, who plays Jane Doe, Um, So, there is an actual actress who is on the table through this entire shoot. To me, that made a huge difference, not seeing just, like, a big rubber fake dead body. Especially with a lot of the close-up scenes that happen, like, it makes a huge difference that it's an actual person laying there. So, talk about a thankless role to be an actress and literally just have to lay naked on a table for most of this movie with no dialogue. But it's incredibly effective. It's way, way, way more impactful then again just it being like an obviously fake rubber body
1: yeah and i would say that her role is probably honestly the hardest role of the movie totally Even though she has no lines, it's surprising like once you actually see it happening, how hard it is to play a dead body on a slab for the entirety of this movie, which runs uh, 86 minutes. And I even remember after watching it, kind of reading a little bit up on like the production of it. And they were saying that like Olwen Kelly is very experienced with like yoga techniques. And so she used like yoga breathing techniques to uh, basically kind of lower her breathing so we weren't weren't seeing her stomach or her, her chest move up. Up and down from breathing. It's it's impressive the way like that she was able to pull this off.
0: Yeah, that's one of the most interesting parts of the movie is, and we can talk about a little bit later. But I like that there is maybe some subtle, very very minute changes to her facial expressions over the course of the movie. Yeah, I have another theory about that, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's it's interesting regardless. The movie was directed by Andre Overdahl, and um, he made one of my favorite found footage movies. I'm not huge on the found footage genre, but there are a few from the last few years that I really do love, and his is called Troll Hunter, and that movie is dope. If you haven't seen it, go check out Troll Hunter. Not the cgi animated kids show from my boy guillermo del toro but the actual found footage um norwegian troll movie
1: yeah i think it came out in 2010 i want to say
0: yeah that movie's great that's one that like i remember watching when it came out hearing buzz about it um and immediately fell in love with that movie and showed it to basically everybody in our friend group at the time so you might have seen it if you were around at that point i don't know if you had been still neck deep in school or not but we definitely watched it over at our house actually i don't
1: think i i have watched this one um all the way i've seen again this is going to be a common theme on this podcast you're going to hear me say very much like a lot of times i've seen bits and pieces of it here and there but i've never seen it start to finish so that's one of these movies
0: Overdoll specifically was inspired by The Conjuring for this movie. He saw The Conjuring and was just like, fuck, like, I can do something like this. I want to do something like this. So his people dug up a blacklist script. They, you know, kind of handed it to him and he looked it over and, you know, that's that. He's a fantastic director. I'm really curious to kind of see what he gets up to next. He's got two or three things in production right now, various stages of production, so I'm excited to see what all he gets up to. I know one thing that everybody's been kind of buzzing about for a while is he's doing a movie adaptation of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark.
1: Oh, shit, really? Yeah,
0: you remember like those books from growing up? So we're not super old. We are both in our like early 30s. But we're also not 15 anymore. So for all the young kids, these are books that we definitely grew up with. They're probably still at your school library. You can go find them easily. But it had just a bunch of stories that are like the regular kind of campfire, you know, spoopy stories that kids tell. But they had the most fucked up awful artwork in them. Just gross corpse spider everything's very stringy and I like, I don't know how to describe the artwork, but it's just super fucked up. So I'm curious to see what he does with that, considering some of the imagery that he pulls off in this movie. The only other thing to note is that Martin Sheen was originally cast as the father, Tommy, and um he had to drop out. It didn't particularly say why in any of the sources that I read. The role is very much almost like written for him too. Um, it seems so, yeah.
1: Not to say that Brian Cox did a bad job. He did a phenomenal job. Yeah, not at all. Brian
0: Cox is always good in everything that he's in.
1: It is one of those things where I could have easily seen Martin yeah. Sheen in this role as well.
0: And I, I really love Brian Cox. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors. I mean, from all kinds of shit, like he played the original Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter by Michael Mann through X-Men movies and into Trick or Treat. I mean, he's been in all kinds of stuff over the years, so he's one of those that guy actors that you know from all kinds of stuff.
1: Yeah, his his uh his filmography is kind of ridiculous when you pull it up.
0: The only other person to really, you know, make note of from a cast standpoint, Michael McKellan. Um He's the guy that plays the sheriff in this movie, and he plays Ruth Bolton on the Game of Thrones series. This movie was filmed in England. The director is Norwegian, like I mentioned earlier. Michael McKellan is English, but he is putting on possibly the worst southern accent i've ever heard the movie takes place in virginia but his accent is kind of all over the place and he's not good as someone with a really bad southern accent his southern accent's pretty atrocious
1: yeah i didn't even like look at like i didn't even analyze as try and figure out what accent he was trying to pull off i was just like oh he's he's attempting something yeah so i'll
0: leave it at that to get started the movie begins in a house And we don't know whose house it is or really what time it is or what's going on. But the house is clearly a crime scene. And investigators are there kind of checking things out and taking photos. And it's a really strange crime scene. There's all these bits and pieces of things that seem out of place, and there's little clues here and there about what could have happened. We see the couple who owns the house, presumably, dead. There is also a guy who is possibly, like, some kind of home invader. Um, he is also dead. And, again, we don't really know what happened. It's just this really strange crime scene that doesn't make any sense.
1: And it's bloody. It's gory. Oh yeah, like all all these bodies are like chopped up and things.
0: Two notes that I made about this is because the
1: opening shot is like going into the like going towards the house. I was just like, is this the town from It Follows? Because the house like looked just like something on that same street that they lived on. Um, and then starting the movie off of like camera flashes of bodies, like them taking pictures and everything, was a little bit reminiscent of Texas Chainsaw Massacre's opening scene
0: to me. Yep, it kind of has the same feel of the investigators checking everything over and just getting brief glimpses of the horrors that are in the house. So there's this really strange crime scene, but then to top it off, they find the body of a young woman half-buried in the basement there's just like a giant pit dug in the basement and her nude body just kind of casually half buried dot 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 okay right so what's going on
1: and something that's really noticeable about the scene is that her body at least at first appears completely intact yes it's very pale it's very pale obviously and, And, and
0: and clean and clean yes for a body that either was buried and was dug up or is in the process of being buried, her body is very like clean. There's no dirt, there's no sponges, there's no blood, nothing. She's almost like a sculpture, to be honest. Yeah.
1: Like, it's almost like a sculpture of a nude woman. It's very unsettling, like, when they find her down in the basement. It's more unsettling to me than all, like, the gore and chopped up victims upstairs. Because it, it it's this opposition to that, and there's something very creepy about that. Like, right off the bat, you know, there is something real off with this body.
0: The only other clue in this whole situation, the sheriff... You know, and his deputies, they don't find any signs of forced entry, even though there is possibly what appears to be an intruder in the house. But one of the deputies does suggest that, you know, it looks more like that they were trying to get out than somebody was trying to get in. Ooh. We cut over to the Tilden mortuary, and we see Tommy and his son, Austin, at work. Um, so they are in the middle of doing an actual autopsy.
1: This kind of made me laugh, this whole, like, introduction then, them, because first off, their funeral home is, it's obviously, like, a house that was built possibly even in the 1800s. It's even dilapidated a little bit, like, on the inside and creepy as fuck. No one in these three generations thought it was a good idea to maybe modernize it
0: or redecorate it, at least, like... What I found to be interesting, and again, this is just kind of one of those, like, visual show don't tell things and maybe this is me reading too much into it there is a moment where austin does say like oh yeah this has been our family for three generations and three generations have all added on to and expanded this whole operation to where now we have this like state-of-the-art facility and you're right on the outside of above ground that is just a house but then you literally take an elevator down to this underground mortuary facility where they have a full-blown furnace and a giant like six to eight slab refrigerator Um, like it is very impressive you know especially since this is all supposed to be like under their house but what I found interesting is you have the main initial hallway where there's lots of like wood paneling and lots of like old timey looking lights but then you get into the big main operating facility and there's like modern glass and tile and metal and it looks a lot more modern so like you can see like the bits where it was expanded by the different generations because they're slightly different they're in different like stages of age you know what i mean
1: yeah and and that it just threw me off that that hallway that leads to the morgue like once you're down in the basement area it looks like a an abandoned haunted house that was built in the 1800s and uh and why they chose to keep it that way who knows you know it could have been just oh it's we're keeping it because it's like the rustic feel or it's in memory of those before us whatever you want to call it even the elevator
0: is old like the elevator is like kind of one of those like 1920s like it's like the big the metal like lattice grate doors and wallpaper in the hallway is like floral and again there's like wainscoting that's you know gross wood paneling that's all old and dated and everything else so we see them working and they're doing an autopsy on a body that came from i guess we can presume a house fire because this this corpse is crispy and gross and you just see them tearing into it
1: oh yeah this movie does not shy away from like the actual process of like doing an autopsy
0: yeah and i think that having this scene at the beginning of them working is very 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 smart because not only does it show the actual process start to finish i mean we literally see them like bring the body in and process it completely, doing the Y incision, like, all the way down to, like, taking out and weighing the brain and marking up charts and everything else. So you get the context of this is what an autopsy should look like. It should be this straightforward and standard. I think it's also interesting because right off the bat, the movie is playing with, just a general fear of dead bodies and if we're going to talk about like why this movie's effective and like what fears this movie plays on that is certainly one it's just you know lots of people have fear of dead bodies that's very especially common.
1: especially in america america oh, yeah. it's kind of like we don't want to look at the bodies too long and the, for the little bit of time we do want to look at them we want them to be in pristine condition and yeah then just like put them in the ground and that's that whereas you know past cultures and even other cultures to this day they sell Celebrate death, whereas we do not celebrate death. We're afraid of death in a lot of
0: ways. And I think that attitude is very common in more modern Western societies where life is generally easier. You know, back in the day, Back in the pioneer days of America, you know, death was just so common that it wasn't that big of a deal. But yeah, now you don't want to see a dead body, let alone a dead body that looks off in any way, shape, or form. What's jarring about this initial scene is just seeing this body that, again, is fucked up. It is crispy, it's gross, and they're just kind of digging into it.
1: They are doing it in ways that, like, it reminds me of surgeons I've worked with, it reminds me of of just doctors who are in these high-intensity type jobs, and I've never been in a morgue personally, but I can tell you that there are probably tons of morticians out there who, like, listen to rock music while they're doing an autopsy, like these two are. They have like the radio on, and they're rocking out, and I made the note of, rocking by day, cutting up burn victims by night, because, like, like that's kind of like how we're introduced to it like it's business as usual to this son and this father
0: you know you have to have and you can speak to this too but you know there's a certain point where when you're in the medical field you have to have a level of disconnect in a lot of situations like this absolutely especially when you're dealing with bodies that are already Dead. You know, there's no like emotions to play with. There's, you know, there's not like a person who's still alive that you're having to care for. Like at this point, they're meat. And so they treat it like meat. You see them just cutting in, knocking it out, processing the body like a butcher would, essentially.
1: This might be jarring to some people, especially those who do kind of shy away from anything medical or anything death related. But this scene is probably exact like I was saying earlier. This is probably how a lot of mort- morticians do it. Like it, it might seem mean spirited to some people. But I can tell you right now, even even where I worked at in, in an ICU, we had gallows humor. We had kind of dark humor. because yeah. it, it's a coping mechanism and it's a way to disconnect. It, it's not because there there's any disrespect for the dead or disrespect for patients or anything like that. No, not at all we have the utmost respect but for us to do our job properly and to have that disconnect we have to cope in certain ways and sometimes those ways can seem off-putting to people who aren't in those type of jobs and one of those things is like gallows humor or like listening to rock music while you're cutting up a body like
0: you've got to let off
1: steam somehow yeah i mean in, in surgery tons of surgeons have surgery playlists that they listen to yeah you'd be surprised at like some of the ways people act when you're under or the way they may treat a dead body yeah because at the end of the
0: day too like it's their job so they're gonna just treat their job like any of the rest of us treat their job at you know past a certain point so yeah we see them finish up a body they kind of have a brief moment this is like what the plot hangs on in the entire movie but there's a moment where the father tommy says okay what was the cause of death and austin's immediate reaction was like well he was in a house fire so it was smoke inhalation his lungs are all scorched so that's surely what it was and Brian Cox is like nope wrong. He has a hemorrhage in his head, blah blah blah. You know, which totally explains why he didn't get up when the house set on fire. So he probably, like, slipped hit his head while he was cooking, died, and then the house burned down around him. You know, so the point of that was, he basically just said, like, we can't just make inferences based on, like, what the obvious answer is. We have to look deeper and there might sometimes be, like, one particular thing that actually is the cause of death and you can maybe build a picture around that, but that's not our job to do. That's the Job of the investigators you know so don't take things at their first appearance
1: and it was a very sincere like father-son moment because like you could see that the son was a little frustrated even with the dad but at the same time could tell that his dad was right and he's learning a lesson basically. <laughs> I I also made a notation of check your corners rookie. Yeah. It's basically it's kind of like what it came off as. But yeah, no, this is a very sincere moment between a, a father and a son and a father who's trying to teach his son like the way to do things correctly.
0: From here, we have the first appearance of Emma who is Austin's girlfriend
1: so i did make a notation here i was a dumb idiot and i got jump scared twice by first at the t- around the 10 minute mark the father leaves and he's like tells his son to clean up so his son's like about to put the body away in, in the little body locker you hear something in the duct and he goes over the duct and a cat jumps out and the cat's name is stanley That stupidly got me. I fell for that one. I don't know how or why. I should have seen it coming. And then, like, literally 50 seconds later, Emma jumps on him. It's like a false jump scare. Like, she jumps behind him and, like, grabs him from behind. And I wrote down, fuck you, Emma. Jesus Christ.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Emma shows up. And she's there to uh, meet up with Austin because they were supposed to go out. And Austin kind of makes a big deal of it because, you know, this is his job. He's kind of being protective of her sensibilities a little bit because it is a fucking morgue. And she's kind of fascinated by it and she's teasing him because, you know, he can drop by her job all the time, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, well, you work in a bookstore. So he's kind of being overly serious about it. And so she kind of teases him and is like, you know, are there dead bodies in in that fridge and he's like yeah i mean this is a mortuary that's what we do um and she's kind of teasing him about wanting to see one he's kind of like no 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 we're not going to go there and at that point the dad tommy walks in and is like nah show her dead body she wants to see a dead body show her dead body and so they kind of look at the different ones and there's different causes of death right and we find out that you know one was carcinogenic melanoma and that her eyes and mouth are sewn up and there's another guy that was like a I think he tried to poison himself with strychnine and it didn't work so he shotgun blasted his face off they open up the the woman first and yeah
1: it's fucking creepy like yeah like to see her eyes stitched up and her mouth stitched up like they don't shy away with just how fucking creepy that is and then the gunshot wound guy it's like you know the typical white a uh, white gown or white sheet over the body but then they also specifically have the head covered and it's like bloody through the sheet you can see yeah and it's like caved in where he shot himself and it's definitely bloody in that spot and uh like (laughs) i was wondering at this point does every person in this town die horrifically or like leave behind horrific looking corpses and also too that To me, Emma in this scene almost represents most of the audience, I I would guess, and and probably most everyday Americans of just like, there is that slight morbid fascination with death and wanting to see a dead body, but you don't actually want to see a dead body.
0: Yeah, totally. The other thing to note too, the bodies have little bells tied to the toes, and Emma asks why the bells, and Tommy explains, well, you know, back in the day, you couldn't always know for sure if someone was dead when they were brought in, and maybe just not coma Matose. Back in the old days, they didn't really know the nuance there. You know, somebody could be, you know, in complete coma and they just assume that they're dead. So they tied bells to people's bodies to make sure that they were actually dead. And that way, like, if they have an involuntary twitch, you hear the bell ring and you know that, like, that person's probably not actually dead. And he just kind of says, like, well, it's just, it's a tradition. You know, we still do it. And at that point, she kind of leans into the body. And this was another jump scare where he grabs the toe and rings the bell to freak her out. Um, but it's... It's done in a very good jump scare kind of way.
1: So this one actually didn't jump scare me that bad. In fact, I was laughing because I said, and I wrote down, Emma, you deserved that for earlier. Um, So I kind of like laughed during that scene.
0: So this is the other point that I'll make about the very beginning of this movie. It does a really good job from a storytelling standpoint to set up all of these various Chekhov's guns. This isn't just like Chekhov's gun in the drawer. This is like Chekhov's punisher arsenal in the closet (laughs) yes (laughs) there are mirrors that they have on all the corners in the main hallway um just that way if you're like wheeling a gurney down you can see around the corner to make sure that you're not about to smack into somebody and and these are
1: these are used in hospitals to this day like everywhere like on the unit
0: i worked at we had them
1: around every corner well there i'll make a comment when we get to that later on down the line yeah
0: it's the same like big round mirrors mounted in the corner that you see you know in all kinds of places. They have them like in convenience stores and places where they want to be able to like see cameras. Um, there's also the elevator which immediately like right at the beginning bang on the elevator because it's kind of and wonky. The bells on the toes. Again just seeing like the entire general procedure of the autopsy laid out at the beginning and just kind of knowing like these are the steps that you go through and this is what it's normally like. So when we get into the autopsy later and you see how wrong everything goes you know it's just a good setup so there's lots of little bits and pieces they clue you in the cat's another one the cat's another perfect example of like Chekhov's gun, where they kind of give you that initial setup and scare at the beginning and you don't really think anything of it, but it pays off later. Pretty much every small detail of this movie is important to the overall story, which is why I think it's like a really well-told and well-written story because there's not a lot of wasted space in this movie. It's not a long movie, so it's just very well put together. From here, the sheriff arrives and he's got the mysterious body on a gurney, and he comes down the elevator and he's wheeling her in. He basically just tells the father that the situation's fucked. They've got to have a cause of death on this body and figure out what's going on by the morning. So he basically just begs them to, like, rush this in at the last minute, even though they were winding down for the day. Austin was about to go on a date with Emma. On one hand, he's kind of like, yeah, no, like, dad can handle it. I'm not gonna go. And then more and more, he's just like, Uh, but I need to, like, be here and do it. Like, he's definitely feeling, like, guilty, you know, Emma's kind of giving him some grief about it a little bit, but at the end of the day, they both just kind of agree, like, look, go do what you need to do, I'll meet you later tonight, we can go catch a midnight movie. It's like, okay, cool. Should have gone with fucking Emma, Austin. Yep, they start to perform the autopsy, just a little bit of backstory, a little bit of context, and I can't remember like where this scene exactly comes in, because once the autopsy starts, it's pretty just like boom, 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 but there is a moment where the father and son like have a brief discussion in the elevator, the rickety-ass elevator, and they're talking about how this has to be after this moment with Emma, because what you're getting at here ultimately is that Austin is definitely being put in line to take over the family business, and he doesn't want that and he tells Emma as much that like you know I don't want to be the fourth Tilden to be a mortician you know, I want to do something different. I want to get out on my own. But, you know, God damn it, I feel bad about, like, stepping out on this way. And then you find out that the mother died, like, two years ago. So, Tommy's lost his wife. He's still grieving. He's still having trouble getting over that. Austin is feeling guilty about that because he's now the only person left in Tommy's life. So, he feels bad about ditching his dad. But that's another thing that, again, these are, like, very quick little beats of their them discussing their dynamic without having to like give you an exposition dump they're just talking about what they are doing going forward without having to like oh yeah like well all this other stuff happened blah, blah blah so it's very good about how it executes that but what i find interesting is that all this you know, backstory that they kind of set up, you know all you need to know about the two main characters. And both of them are dealing with very specific and realistic fears that we all have. And even though this movie gets into some very fantastic fears later, these characters are playing on a very, like, real-life true fears of loss, of grief, of fear of, like, moving on. Brian Cox is definitely grieving over his wife, who died, like, I think they said two years ago. He's still just not over it and now he's also terrified of losing his son who's the only person left in his life and emile hirsch like many young characters like in fiction in general is just scared of complacency like he's scared of just falling in with what his family expects of him he doesn't want to just be again like another generation of undertaker he's kind of bucking against that fate a little bit you know and i find that interesting because that's fear. That is actual fear. If we're talking about like why this movie's effective, those characters are both playing on fears that we can one hundred percent relate to as human beings, even though it's not like explicitly what the movie's dealing with.
1: Yeah, and you you can tell too that just from these few scenes that Austin and Emma are in love. They're like they this is like a new love that's blossoming. However, Emma is also kind of trying to and not in a bad way, like just in a normal everyday this is life way kind of like i think you know you or have a lot of doubts just being the fourth generation of this of being an undertaker you should tell your dad that you want to leave you don't want to follow in this business and so she's kind of trying to push him in that way then he also has like i don't know if you want to call it like his dad's family so he wants to also at the same time there's a little bit of that guilt of just like i owe it to my dad and to our history of our family to also do this thing so we're, yeah. we're basically catching at the time this movie takes place we're catching austin in a very coming of age part of his life that we've all probably faced in our early 20s yeah another kind of foreshadowing sort of thing is when the body is brought in stanley the cat growls yeah instantly just like fuck this body and then i wrote down y'all should listen to stanley
0: and not do this yep animals always know
1: We'll touch on that later.
0: Tommy and Austin get right down to starting the autopsy. And we see them do all the normal things that we kind of saw them do earlier. They have the big giant chalkboard with body outline where they can write notes. They've got the video camera rolling. You see them get prepped and washed up and throw their smocks on, right, and lay out the tools. So they get going. They have music playing in the background like they did before with the radio. As they start the external examination, immediately, like we talked about earlier, there's no outward, visible signs of trauma. There's no marks, there's no mutilation, there's nothing that they really see right away. The first thing that they notice is that her wrists and ankles have been shattered and there's no external identification of that like there's no bruising there's no blood splotches but her joints are definitely fucked they also find that her tongue has been cut out as they're kind of talking you're getting like the medical examiner side of all this like okay well her tongue is cut out but she did not bite it off There would have been like teeth marks and the marks that are on the tongue are like really jagged knife marks. They also find that one of her molars is missing. They go ahead and do the Y incision and they crack her open and they find that her lungs are blackened as if she had been in some kind of fire. And this was kind of a throwback to the guy that we see right at the very beginning. You know, it's the same kind of, like, scorched black lungs. They also find that several of her internal organs have cuts and scarring. There's, like, a little white line of scar tissue across many of her organs, which that level of trauma... First of all, there's no external indication of this. Like, there's no stab marks. So how would she have all these, like, cuts and scars on the inside of her without any kind of show on the outside?
1: Meanwhile, Brian Cox's character is, like, saying all this stuff like, this is really rare, but I have come across or I have heard about this happening yeah. during autopsies. So he's kind of giving medical explanations of stuff that, while rare, can happen to be the cause of this but when they open up the body and they look at the internal organs that's when they start getting like kind of truly perplexed yeah also too during this time they do a shot a couple times of Jane Doe's face we had mentioned earlier the expression that Owen and Kelly is making is truly creepy truly unsettling her eyes are wide open they're kind of glossed over her skin is really pale and white the way they they shoot her face and her expression you feel like at any point like while they're doing this she's gonna jump up up and, like, rip these two apart.
0: Yeah, it's very it's very unsettling. Yes, yeah,
1: so you can tell that this body is not a typical body, and this shot is all throughout the movie, and just that always made me feel unsettled. I always kind of, like, started feeling myself tense up anytime they they did, like, kind of a zoom in on her face because I was, like, expecting it to blink or expecting it to jump up or whatever.
0: That's another reason why I'm glad that they actually used a real live actress and not just a rubber dummy because for all of those close-ups... There's no way. Like, it it would have been so obviously fake in all those moments.
1: Yeah. During all this time, is this where also, to the fly comes out?
0: Yeah, so all of these bits and pieces of things kind of happen really quickly right after another. Going back to your point about, like, this is rare, but I've seen it. Um, As soon as they go in to do the Y incision, the body just starts pouring blood. That doesn't happen with dead bodies for several physiological reasons you cut into a dead body and you don't just have like fresh blood pour out like that so that was the first like whoa what the fuck Brian Cox kind of says well you know with corpses that are super fresh that can still happen but then you start to get into all these other weird bits and pieces like they look at her eyes like you mentioned and her eyes are completely clouded over in a way that eyes don't do unless a body's been dead for several days so they can't kind of square like you have all these other signs of all this bizarre our trauma and yet you look perfect on the outside. You bleed like a corpse would bleed if it were, had been dead, like, less than an hour. So there's all these, like, weird, strange things. And then, yeah, there's little moments like you mentioned, you see her nostril start to twitch. And it's, it's very, very subtle. It's one of those blink-and-you-missed-it kind of moments. But Emile Hirsch notices it and looks over, and then a fucking fly, like, crawls out of her nostril. And it's the most unsettling, bizarre thing, because you just see its gross little like fly hands like stick out of her nostril and like wrap around the sides of her nostril and like pull itself out and it's just so gross and unsettling
1: and after the fly does that a little bit of streak of blood comes out of that nostril
0: yeah so the other thing that they find while doing the immediate once over They notice when they're looking in her mouth again and they discover her tongue has been severed. Um, They find something crammed down in her throat and this is kind of very Silence of the Lambs but they pull it out and it's like a giant flower. It looks kind of almost like a like a lily, but it's darker. And they take a look at it. They pull out a book on plants, and it's apparently something called Jimson weed, um, which is a paralyzing agent. And it's not one that like is found you know anywhere near Virginia. It's something that only really grows up north. Which, again, you know, Brian Cox is kind of like, well, I mean, it could be, you know, found around here during certain times of the year, you know, so that's not, like, super abnormal, right? So there's, like, all these bits and pieces of things that just don't square. Meanwhile, you start
1: having some more of the supernatural, like, horror movie tropes pop up, and as tropey as it gets it never took me out of the movie and it felt like it belonged in the movie if that makes any sense like for instance about 27 minutes in the radio that they're listening to starts like changing stations on its own and like goes to like a creepy unsettling song kind of like the amazing grace song that you mentioned exactly. earlier on. i wrote down like that should have been a fucking sign right there like get out of there and uh so yeah there's all these little tropes because then like a storm rolls in and as it's thundering and lightning like the lights are flickering and things like that so shit's escalating.
0: I find it interesting too that this whole morgue that this family's built is underneath the house it's underground like you literally have to take an elevator down to get there because that just further creates a sense of isolation. You know, like, the there's one way out. And, well, there's not one way out. We find out that there's two ways out. But just being underground, you're completely isolated. You never quite know, like, what time of the day it is. You don't really know what's going on outside. Um, but they're talking about a storm on the radio coming in. You kind of see the lights flicker a little bit. You occasionally hear some muffled thunder. So, you know, something spoopy is definitely happening. And it's just creating this really interesting atmosphere while they're going through and doing this very questionable autopsy at this point they kind of take a break they go through like the initial first chunk of this autopsy and they're like all right let's take a break, so they step away for a minute. Austin steps out into the hallway to kind of check his messages and see if Emma sent him anything. This is when you get your first fuckery with the weird corner mirrors, because he kind of hears a noise, looks up, and sees kind of the vague outline of possibly a person that's around the corner in the other hallway, further down the hallway, just kind of standing there. And it, like, freaks him the fuck out. And then of course he, like, eases his way around the hall all and there's nobody there
1: this scene is something that I pictured in my head probably thousands of times when I worked in the PICU because we had these mirrors around like I I said we had these mirrors around every corner they were pretty much around almost every corner in the hospital I worked in and it was a modern hospital so like even then bright lights everything fluorescent everywhere this was a fear of mine that I would always think like when I was especially when I was walking by myself and I worked night shift so there's that too I'm walking down the hallway I'm looking up at the mirror to make sure no one's coming but then at the same time i always pictured like seeing something that shouldn't be there um and then turning the corner and it's not there and so to see it actually occur in a movie and i'm sure maybe this isn't the first time this has happened in a movie at all but it's probably one of the first times i've seen it done this effectively i started
0: really getting creeped out here (laughs) y'all So while he's also on break, he starts to kind of hear some more noises. And after he's gone around the corner and found there's nobody there, he hears another noise coming from one of the other office rooms that they have downstairs. So he goes to investigate it. And it's the same room where they have, um, it's like a storage room, essentially. But he hears a sound coming from one of the air ducts. And as he gets closer, he kind of hears more rustling in the air ducts. And he takes the cover off then he sees the cat again and earlier in the movie you know the cat jumped out and scared him and kind of left a dead rat so the cat had been up in the ducks killing rats you know and that was like fairly normal but he heard the rustling and goes to look for the cat and immediately finds the cat and pulls the cat out and the cat is dying the cat has been like ripped open somehow this is a
1: kind of another jump scare moment too because i'd say i'd time stamp it around like the 34 minute 30 second mark because before like he takes a cat out there is kind of like Something flashes by the screen because, like, the way that the camera's positioned, it's positioned inside the duct for a second, looking out at his face, looking into the duct. And you see something go by the camera real fast. Um, and he kind of falls backwards. And then when he gets back up and looks back in it, he sees the cat. So, Stanley, yeah, like Mansfield saying, Stanley's dying. And I I think I even texted Mansfield this. You did. I said, Fuck this ghost for doing this to the cat. The cat didn't deserve this. The cat was unnecessary.
0: At that point, Tommy finds him, he takes the cat, snaps its neck to kind of put it out of its misery, wraps it in a black bag, and puts it in the furnace. So he goes ahead and just gets rid of the cat. And this is a very, like, this is probably, like, one of the saddest moments of the entire movie because, again, his character is dealing with loss and he's grieving from his wife and, you know, he's already terrified of his son leaving and now the fucking cat's dead. And he even mentioned how like
1: the cat was one of the last things that he had from his wife, because yeah. it was his wife's cat. Because earlier in the movie, when the cat like hisses and everything, he even makes a joke about like the cat's basically an asshole. But you can tell he actually really loved the cat for what it represented. It was his wife's, and so he's basically burning away and saying goodbye to another part of his wife, maybe the last part of his wife. Yeah. That was actually still around. And again, as a cat owner myself, just fuck this ghost.
0: <laughs> They're kind of dis- Disheartened, but they decide, okay, like let's go ahead and like get back to what we were doing and get this wrapped up. They start the next phase of the autopsy where they're gonna actually look at the internal organs and kind of go from there. They end up finding a weird little cloth sack in her stomach. They pull the sack out and they unwrap it. All that's in the sack is a tooth. And sure enough, it's the missing molar that they discovered earlier. But the cloth itself is really strange. It has all these symbols written on it. Um, There's Roman numerals. There's letters. There's like a weird kind of diagram and all these odd symbols right and they can't quite like figure out like what the hell it is but they kind of throw it under light and examine it and they can't you know quite figure it out
1: the symbol looks very much like a sigil yeah it reminded me very much of a kind of maybe a pagan sigil or something like that at at this time weird shit is still continuing to happening because like very quickly after they said goodbye to stanley one of the morgue body drawers opens on its own yeah like slowly just creeps open again another trope that's effective and and I think fits well in this this movie. <laughs> Again, when that happens, what are you fucking waiting for? I would have been out of there a long time ago. But this would have been like the nail in the coffin.
0: Yeah, and Austin is definitely like he's feeling this creepiness a lot more than his dad. But he's just trying to like tough it out and not really say anything about it. So yeah, things kind of start to get pretty spoopy pretty quick. And at that point, like I I would have been out. I'd i have just been like, no, we'll finish this in the morning.
1: I'm Austin in this movie, and you're Brian Cox's character in this movie. <laughs> yeah, to a degree, definitely. Again, more creepy shit like are all around this time is ramping up because then the radio comes on and there's this news report from a local radio saying that the severe storm is hitting the area and you should stay indoors and stuff. But the way that it plays, like the announcer has like a very weird tone and like he's saying stuff almost like sarcastically over the radio, like "You're not going anywhere" was literally like one of the things. Things he says and then it switches to that creepy fucking song open up your heart and let the sunshine in again
0: that's when Tommy starts to kind of run down all the things that we know so far and this whole time Austin has been going to the like big giant white erase board and marking up notes on all the trauma that they're finding now that they're kind of going back to the board and they're reviewing all the trauma it's all starting to make sense her wrists and ankles were all shattered because she was probably tied up Her lungs are blackened because she was probably burned. She had the flower that was like a paralyzing agent down in her throat to keep her still that makes sense now but again we still don't have any of the like well why the fuck is this why is this person like and like what's going on still so all the pieces are starting to kind of make sense but there's still no like greater thing happening and it kind of goes back to what Brian Cox said earlier just the like we're here to figure out cause of death but not paint the picture but it's hard because all they can do right now is paint the picture and they're struggling to find the thing that killed her because any of the other bits and pieces should have have killed her. The blackened lungs should have killed her. All the like internal stabbing to her organs should have killed her. You know, there's all these bits and pieces, but they can't quite kneel down like what specifically it was. They kind of look at the edge of the Y incision and notice like there's weird markings. And as they start to peel back the skin from her torso and kind of along the sides of her back, they find that underneath her skin her skin has all of the same markings as the weird little cloth pouch so she has all the same like creepy symbols and roman numerals and stuff like almost tattooed on the inside of her skin
1: and then this is where like really ramps up because after they find the cloth and they write down the symbols and everything this is when the lights begin to flicker then
0: they shut off they like flicker and then they like overload and explode like all the lights like pop.
1: Yeah, and so, like, then, like, it's, everything's pitch black, and you like, can hear, like,
0: stuff being knocked down. There's all this, like, rustling in the background as the scene is, like, completely dark after the lights have blown. Yeah,
1: and the father and son are like, where are you? Like, are you okay? What's happening? And then the backup generator kicks in, and the lights come back on. This is when they discover the three corpses that were in the freezers, basically. They're gone. All three of them are open. There's no bodies inside. Then that's when they fucking finally decide that they, like, this we're out.
0: That's what finally made me kind of crack up because that was the moment where they both look at each other and like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> the done. Like we we're clocking the fuck out. Yeah
1: i think brian cox literally says let's get the fuck out of here finally the dad is like creeped out enough
0: yeah so sure enough they go to the elevator and of course the like janky elevator is not working the generator doesn't have enough power to like power this fucking elevator so they're like okay well let's go out the like cellar door so they go back into like the supply closet and there's a staircase that goes up to a balcony and at the balcony is the cellar door that goes to the outside of the house and this is the normal like big wooden cellar doors that throw open that go down into your basement but because they've done so much excavation and addition to this whole morgue under the house this room is now 20 feet tall they're trying to open the cellar doors and a giant tree that's in their yard has like fallen over in the storm and is completely blocking the door so they can't get out as they are heading back down trying to figure out what to do they suddenly start hearing like weird noises again and they're just like, oh, fuck this. So they kind of rush into the office.
1: They actually hear the bell ringing, like the bell. That, on yeah, corpses. that's right. Yeah. They, they hear the corpse bell ringing and it's getting closer and they can't see from where, but they can hear it getting closer.
0: So yeah, at that point they're just like, nope, fuck this. So they run and kind of lock themselves into the office and block the door.
1: There are two major jump scares in this office area. They're like back to back. And I'll, I'll let you describe more of the scene.
0: So, they hear the bell again Emil Hirsch gets on his hands and knees and is like looking under the crack of the door and you just hear the bell like creeping closer and then all of a sudden you do see the feet like shuffle right into view that's kind of the first like oh shit moment
1: the foot shows up and then the door starts like banging like that the corpse is
0: trying to like trying to get in while they're in there the banging kind of stops for a minute they kind of have a moment to like relax. Tommy goes into the bathroom in his office where there's like a shower and a toilet, just like a place where you could like change and get cleaned up. And he thinks that there's somebody standing behind the shower curtain. And he slowly reaches up, throws the shower curtain, and yeah, there's nobody there. He kind of looks out. Austin asks, like, is everything okay? And Tommy's like, yeah, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden he gets yanked forward by this unseen force and the door slams shut. And all you hear is just like banging and screaming and it's just like really sudden because you didn't think okay there's nobody in there with him. Oh shit, no, something's going on. So Austin runs forward and starts banging on the door trying to get the door open to get to his father.
1: And even though there's no like creepy imagery, like no scary faces or anything like that, the sudden him getting pulled in and the door shutting way scarier than even when it happens in paranormal activity. And this is kind of right around the 51 minute mark of him getting pulled in and this is another like pretty major jump scare to me and whatever
0: got him like fucks him up pretty bad like he's probably got broken ribs he's got a huge bruise across his side where he was slammed around very violently so he's definitely like in kind of a bad way
1: and he he says that the thing that attacked
0: him had the same eyes as the jane doe corpse on the slab they decide to go back to the autopsy room and try to lock themselves in there because they need to be able to get to some kind of first aid for father so they go back in and they're kind of like you know what we need to like we need to knock this out like we need to figure out what's going on like this has uh, all this weird shit that's going on like has something to do with this body so we have to finish this like to make all this shit stop we gotta finish this up so after he gets like briefly patched up they decide to go back and start examining the corpse again i think they might have done a little
1: bit more of the autopsy but then they do find out that they actually uh, are locked in and so kind of in a panic austin this is a scene where austin grabs the axe so there's like a fire emergency axe in in the morgue room. And so he grabs it and he attempts to break the door open and he makes a hole in the door. He looks through the hole in the door. All of a sudden the decomposing like old woman with the stitch face, her face comes into view and you see like her stitched uh, mouth and stitch eyes. And then all of a sudden the door starts shaking like the corpse is trying to get in. And at that point they say, fuck this. And they try and burn the body.
0: Yeah. And since I can't get to the actual furnace, you know they just like call that audible and they're just like fuck it like we're going to burn the body down here so they find some chemicals that are flammable douse the body and set the body on fire and as the body starts to burn the fire just gets massively out of control which first of all like not a great idea to set a fucking fire <laughs> In this, like, enclosed underground room where there's no visible, like, fire extinguishers or anything like that. Like, there's no built-in fire suppression system. Also, like... Think of the oxygen that that fire is going to use up, and that's just pulling a lot of your, like, breathing air out from this underground. Anyway, it's it's dumb. They set the body on fire, and this fire just immediately, like, gets out of control, and it whooshes up to the ceiling, and it spreads across the ceiling. Unnaturally.
1: It's it, yeah. like, it seems like a very unnatural fire.
0: The color is kind of off a little bit, and it's definitely moving in a way that fire normally doesn't. So anyway, they get a fire extinguisher and spray the body out, and kind of hit some of the fire around the room because it definitely like torches a lot of the photos that they had taken of the body and pinned up. It torches a lot of their notes. The video camera gets like knocked over by some kind of flaming debris and the camera's completely fucked. Um so again, like all of the evidence of this autopsy is now just kind of gone. So they spray the body out and once they do, the they realize that the body is fucking spotless. Like yeah, there is there, not no a burn. single burn or mark or disfigurement to this body at all. So they're just kind of like, all right, Huck this, like we just gotta get out. So there's some kind of electrical noise, and oh, the elevator's on again. So they run to the elevator to try to get it to go back up, and the doors won't close. Again, these are like those janky, kind of great doors that close behind the big main slab doors they hear one of the corpses coming up, and they're struggling, like, freaking out, trying to get the doors to close. The bell again. They hear the bell, like, getting closer and closer and closer. You know, at one point, Tommy grabs the axe, he kind of gets ready, and right as the thing gets up close, he swings the axe down and just chops right into what he thinks is one of the corpses. And then as the doors open up slowly, and they see, like... What it was, they realized that it was Emma, and she had come back.
1: Yeah. So something I wanted to say that I thought was actually a nice touch about this movie is so as the as the corpse, like what you believe is the corpse, is coming up on them and the bells getting closer, they do for a split second, like Mansfield was saying, show the body right up on them kind of comes into view like slowly from the darkness into the light and for about a second or two you see the body it looks like the guy who shot himself
0: in the face like it's like
1: this decomposing dude and literally half his face is gone
0: but it's it's still very shadowed too yeah see it briefly and it's kind of blurred so you don't see all the detail but your mind kind of puts together what it is
1: for almost like one second if even like you kind of see what it would have looked like and then yeah he brings the axe down and that's when they discover it's Emma and I also thought it was a nice touch it's actually the corpse I used to scare Emma earlier in the movie that like they were hallucinating when they saw Emma. that's the thing us as the viewers and both of them as they're freaking out realizing it's Emma you know Austin starts crying Uh, and Tommy is just like in disbelief he's just like we both saw that it was not Emma we both saw that it was the corpse they're like yeah we all saw it. it was the corpse now it's Emma so like we're all kind of in this hallucination like we're almost sharing it with them but yeah I thought it was interesting that it was the corpse that, that he rang the bell
0: to scare Emma
1: with early in the movie.
0: They like 100% this is where they decide there is something about this corpse that's preventing them from like leaving and getting out of there so they just know like okay we have to figure out like for sure what the cause of this death is like that's ultimate like what we have to do so they go back to the examination room and like lock themselves in
1: as they're walking up to the examination room there's smoke pouring out of it as they're walking through the the hallway they kind of like walk through the fog of the smoke i can't remember who's in front but whoever's in front uh the one behind them has like their hand on their shoulder or something and they're constantly talking to each other and you start seeing shit like in the fog there's a face in the fog and fucking creepy jump scare like this figure kind of appears in the fog and like attacks them a little bit i think it fucks up tommy some more yeah
0: he's he's like it's thrown around a good bit more and they get separated for like a brief minute but as soon as austin like gets close to him again he's just kind of on the floor and all the like attackers have kind of disappeared into the smoke the smoke figures that attack him like
1: the face it's very distorted and very creepy looking but it does look oddly feminine so you can kind of put together like oh that's jane doe attacking
0: them they get back into the examination room and they get started again they go for the I guess, I don't know what the procedures, is called. The craniotomy, I guess. They yeah. go in and they cut her scalp open and take the bone saw and cut her skull away and take a sample of brain tissue. And when they examine the brain tissue, that's when they discover that her cells are still firing and they're still active. So she is somehow, like, despite all this bullshit that's going on and all these other signs, she is somehow still alive. Her brain is, like, actively working.
1: And early in the autopsy, didn't they, like, remove her heart? Oh, yeah. Like, they, they start removing organs, like, because it's part of the autopsy process. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, how is this possible? She doesn't have a heart, and you would have been dead long, long ago. How is this possible?
0: They kind of go back to the drawing board and look at, like, all the other bits and pieces that they have, that they found so far. So they go back to the cloth, and after, you know, finding all the similar markings underneath her skin, like, there has to be more to that. So they start looking at the cloth some more. And I can't remember which one of them figures this out, but they discover that if you fold this very thin, sheer cloth over in half onto itself, all of the markings line up. And what they find is what looks to be a description of a Bible verse, um, Leviticus 2027 and they go find the bible look up that verse and that verse specifically is about witches it says something along the lines of the lord will punish those who practice witchcraft
1: i pulled up the new international version of leviticus 2027 and it literally says a man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death you are to stone them their blood will be
0: on their own heads so again this kind of gives credence to all the weird bits and pieces of things that they have found so far. And then the other kind of kicker is the Roman numerals that they discovered on the cloth earlier all line up as well. The Roman numerals add up to 1693, which is the date around when the Salem witch trials were going on. So then all of this starts making sense. Tommy and Austin, again, against Tommy's kind of better judgment and what he said earlier about just finding the facts and not necessarily putting together a story on your own, they kind of conclude that essentially this girl was accused of being a witch and people sought to punish her by doing all of the, you know, regular things that we hear about from history that were done to the women in the Salem Witch Trials you know, her hands and ankles were bound her tongue was cut out she was stabbed repeatedly set on fire, so just all the like litany of things that were done to women back in the day but this girl is either clearly actual a witch because of all this spoopy stuff going on, or maybe, I mean, you even get the idea that the whole torture process allowed her to maybe transcend into being a supernatural entity instead like
1: the torture process was more of a almost like a ritual that for whatever reason caused this innocent woman to become a witch or become a supernatural corpse entity of some kind and they even start mentioning too because like austin's like you know why is she doing this to us like we didn't do anything to her blah blah, blah. and he said it doesn't fucking matter Maybe this is like just the way she lashes out. It doesn't matter who gets in her way. It's just whoever she comes across if you're unlucky enough to be caught with this corpse. And it's kind of also implied that like maybe the corpse was purposely stashed, buried under in the basement of the house in the beginning to wreak its havoc on that family. And then now it's happening to them because the co- the, the corpse was brought into them and they started fucking with it. And yeah, and also too, at this point, we haven't been talking too much about the expressions on Jane Doe on the corpse itself but the expression on her face now is very very slight again more props to the actress Owen Kelly it's now like her face is almost like darker and she has like a a more menacing look on it it's very very subtle I almost at one point was like maybe my own mind's playing tricks on me it's just that now that I know that this evil entity is tied to this corpse that oh maybe like now her face looks more menacing but I think they did that on purpose did you get kind of get that same
0: thing so I mentioned it earlier and here's what I think is going on and this is a very very old movie trick you're right i do think over the course of the movie you get the sense that her face is very subtly changing expressions you know from the beginning it's very blank empty face and then you start to maybe see like some sadness in the face as they are talking about how she was tortured and brutalized and then at this point where they're talking about oh well she's possibly like doing this, you see a subtle change in the face to being like more sinister. I don't think the actress is doing anything at all. I think she's doing the same facial expression. I wouldn't even put it past them to be using maybe like some of the same footage. Maybe not the exact same shots but like let's just say they threw a camera up above her and for like two or three minutes she just sat there still. This is what's called the coolest shot effect and this is a very old film trick and it's kind of an interesting psychological test as well this is all editing i can't remember like where it originates i wouldn't be surprised if it's like some eisenstein shit essentially back in the day there was this experiment where you could show a man's face And the man's face is totally neutral. And then you cut to a baby. And the baby's laughing and like having fun. And then it cuts back to the man's face. And the man's face appears to be happier. And then you cut to a woman crying at the gravestone of her like dead husband. And then it cuts back to the man's face. And he appears to be more sad. But it's the same exact neutral face on the man the entire time. And we as an audience psychologically imprint on the man the emotions that we're feeling from seeing the happy laughing baby and then the crying grieving woman and so it changes in our mind's eye the expression that the man is making even though he's making a completely blank and neutral face the entire time empirically and it's just an interesting psychological trick in editing to create that effect and i 100 think that that's what's going on here they're just using the same exact still shots of Owen Kelly and we're just cutting back to that and as an audience we're imprinting on to that face what we're feeling in that moment. We're feeling sorrow and pity for this woman who is brutalized so then we see it in her eyes and we see like the sadness in her face and then once we start talking about like oh well, she was actually a witch and there's this sinister intent we see a sense of mischief in her face but it's the same face like I 100% convinced that that's what's going on and that it's just a trick of editing
1: i can agree with you on that if, if that's the trick, it's very effective because, I mean, even at this point, it almost felt like her skin was starting to get a little bit more color to it. Almost like my own mind was thinking, like, the more that this fucked up shit happens, the more she gets closer to, like, being resurrected, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's very
0: fascinating. Once they kind of reach these conclusions, the doors start banging again. Austin goes over and kind of throws himself at the door to keep it shut as the other corpses are trying to get in. Tommy, at this point, is basically just pleading with James. Kando's corpse, you know, he's like, look, what these people have done to you is wrong. Like, what are we missing? Tell me what we're missing. Like, what can we do? Like, how do we help you? We know at this point, like, there's something going on. So, like, tell me, like, what the hell to do? And the corpse at that point, basically just like, okay, cool, here we go. Tommy starts, he starts to manifest all of the same torture and trauma that has been done to the body.
1: And it's interesting because right before the corpse does that to him, one of the last things he says is, you can take me, I can be your sacrifice, but please spare my son.
0: Instantly, his wrists go crooked and his ankles go crooked. and He falls over and then you see the like ankles and wrists of the Jane Doe corpse suddenly like click, click, click and straighten out you see her lungs turn more a normal pink color and then you see black smoke pour out of Tommy's mouth. Her eyes start to go back to normal and his cloud over. All of like internal scarring and stabbing on her organs, you see all those scar tissue kind of melt away and you see him start to convulse on the ground. So all the things that had happened to her are now happening to him and it's healing her body so her body is like sealing itself up even the y incision they kind of laid the flaps of skin back over her and put the organs back inside her but you literally start to see everything like seal up and snap back together until she's like a perfectly untouched blemish-free corpse again so and you see like you said some color kind of come back to her at this point Tommy is now just broken and suffering. Austin is now holding him, like, really not knowing what to do. And Tommy just kind of begs him at that point, like, please kill me. He reaches over, he puts... um, It's some kind of surgical knife, but to me it kind of looks just like a weird, like, safety knife box cutter thing. And Austin, crying, holding his dad in his arms, puts the knife into his chest and puts him out of his misery. As everything is kind of quieted down... The banging on the doors have stopped he begins to kind of hear a voice slightly calling out and the storm has died down you don't hear the rain and thunder outside you don't hear banging on the door so everything's kind of gotten quiet again but you start to hear a voice and he gets up and kind of follows the noise And he goes back to the supply room where the stairway leads up to the cellar doors. And it's the voice of the sheriff. And the sheriff is telling him, hey, we're here. Everything's fine. You know, we're going to get you guys out. Just, we got to get this tree out of the way and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, come on, open the doors. And Austin's trying and can't get the doors open. And, you know, he's just sitting like, just come on, come on, you can do it. Just push the doors open. Just push the doors open. And Austin's just telling him, like, I can't, I can't do it. And then all of a sudden, the sheriff's voice melts into like, come on, open the doors, open. Open the doors, open the doors, and let the sun shine in. And that's yeah, at the point where he's singing. just like, "Oh <laughs> fuck." he realizes at that point oh god this is not the sheriff and we've discussed this in previous episodes but i just i love in movies any time where that whole illusion and veneer of authority and safety is just shotgun blasted out from underneath you in the moment and just like the people and institutions that you know that you can trust any other time guess what they are also against you and want to like fuck your world up
1: And I laughed a lot too because it was pretty funny hearing, uh, Michael, uh, Mc, What's his last name again? I always forget it. Mick L. Hatton. Mick Hatton. <laughs> I'll just call him Ramsey Bolton. Or was he Roos or Ramsey? He was Roos. I think he was Roos. Yeah, Roos Bolton. It-, it was funny to listen to him start singing Open Up Your Heart and Let the Sun Shine In, but like doing it in a really creepy way, but also trying to maintain that weird fucking accent he was trying to pull
0: off. So at that moment, Austin turns around to like run down the stairs again and standing right the fuck in front of him is... His dad's corpse. It's a very Quick flash, but it's just enough to like freak him out, and he steps back into the railing of the balcony, and the railing snaps, which we saw in the movie earlier. Again, this is another one of those like many of Chekhov's guns. The railing was already kind of cracked, so he backs up right into that crack, and it breaks, and Austin falls right off the balcony onto the ground and breaks his neck. The movie then cuts. We go back outside the house, and what you immediately realize is it's the next morning. Everything is fine. There is no debris. There is no signs that there was ever actually a storm. There's no tree blocking the cellar door. Everything is totally just like we saw it at the very beginning of the movie. And the sheriff, other like medical examiners and people are all there, and very much like the exact scene at the beginning where we're just seeing all these brief like flashes of all these weird clues of what happened. Kind of like that scene in The Thing where they go to the Norwegian camp and you see all these like weird signs of what the hell happened but you're not sure like exactly like what led to what. So it's the same here but we're seeing all the things that we've witnessed over the course of the movie that happened. You know you see the fire damage and you see the big axe hole chopped in the door and you see the like elevator doors kind of janky.
1: And you see all their core you see Emma's, you see yeah. Austin's, you see Tommy's. But all the supernatural elements, all the things like the corpses, it's as if they never were moved.
0: Yeah, all the corpses like kind of got back in the freezer and the doors are shut. Basically, all the notes and all the evidence of the autopsy is gone because now the body is kind of back to where it was when it came in. But the notes have burned up, the photos are all damaged, the camera itself is busted and burned up on the floor, so all evidence of, like, what happened is now gone. So, again, they find the corpse just like they had dropped it off. And so, at this point, the sheriff is just like, fuck it, get rid of this body, dump it in another county. Let that be their problem, get the body out of my fucking county, I don't want to have anything to do with this. What it then cuts to is an ambulance driving away with Jane Doe's body. The guy driving is kind of on, like, a Bluetooth earpiece talking to somebody. and He's not paying attention. The radio was playing some music, and then all of a sudden, the radio clicks over to the let the sun shine in creepy, weird song. The camera slowly pulls to the back of the van and it settles kind of like right at her feet. And then, all of a sudden, right as the song's about to wind down, you see Jane Doe's toe twitch real quick. And the bell sounds. And the as bell well. sounds. So, the corpse bell. Boom, that's
1: it. Another nice touch, too, was like on that radio station, they even had like a what. The report—it's just like just like yesterday. It's another bright and sunny day today. So like there was never a storm. I feel like a total idiot. I didn't notice that the EMT driver was wearing a Bluetooth and talking. I thought he was literally talking to Jane Doe's corpse like he was in on it because he was saying stuff like, oh, come on, baby, you know, it's not going to be like that this time. And he was like looking back at the corpse while he was talking and I didn't notice the Bluetooth when I watched it. So I even made a note of like, is the EMT talking to her? Is he like part of her plan? Basically, like he's driving her and stashing her at all these places. But I didn't realize he was on the Bluetooth. yeah he's just like the
0: next poor schmuck that has to deal with this dead body i didn't see the the bluetooth so i'm an idiot i miss that he's bringing her to the next victims so that's it end of the movie i really dug this movie the first time i saw it. like i loved the shit out of this movie when i first saw it i still think it really holds up well it does a good job of giving you like just enough information as the movie goes along to put the pieces together yourself if you really already know that backstory and the history of the Salem witch trials and kind of how we treated all these innocent women and tortured them and just all the typical things that go into that like you can kind of put all the two to two together but if you don't know any of that like it's all very new information and it keeps you guessing as the movie progresses. And until the end, where they do put the cloth together and they find the Bible verse that explicitly calls out witchcraft, you know, you're just kind of wondering, like, what weird shit is going on? This body is maybe, like, still alive? Like, you have all these bits and pieces, but you're not sure how they fit together.
1: So, a question I wanted to ask you, and it was one that was on my mind, besides the M.T. driver, I was going to ask you about the M.T. driver until you mentioned him actually wearing a Bluetooth. I do like my theory... That I came up with in, in my own ability to not pay attention to details. But the other question I wanted to ask you was, do you think if Jane Doe almost quote unquote completed the ritual that she went through and killed him that way, that she actually would have spared Austin and that they unfortunately fucked themselves over when Austin stabbed him and like killed him off before it could conclude And so that's why she decided, like, at the end, like, no, Austin's got to go, too. Or do you just think it didn't fucking matter and she was going to kill him either way?
0: I mean, that's a possibility. Because at the end of the day, Brian Cox's whole point is, like, we are just here to figure out cause of death. Regardless of, like, all the other clues and what they point to, that might not be the case. You know, kind of like the guy at the very beginning, he was like, well, fuck, this guy was in, like, a house fire, so, okay, how do you die in a house fire? Like, you burn to death, or your lungs are scorched, or whatever, but it's like, no, he just hit his fucking head like you didn't pay attention to that one detail you have all of this crazy trauma to the corpse but yeah they never conclusively discover what the definite cause of death was if jane doe is just executing the ritual maybe yeah she didn't get to like whatever the last final thing was definitively but at the end of the day too let's say again like Her brain's still functioning. She's still alive. The, like, witch corpse is still functioning. Well, they also, like, were part of that trauma and that torture. They literally cut her body open, tore all of her insides out, cut her head open, pulled her brain out. They also participated in in the ritual and in the torture so maybe like there is no definitive cause of death because they were just the next piece of that puzzle and the next like chapter in that story and so they were equally guilty and regardless of what their meanings were they were still participants and so she was gonna enact revenge regardless
1: yeah and like Tommy said it's like cause when Austin says why us we didn't do anything Tommy says it doesn't fucking matter it's whoever gets in her way yeah. and even too I think Austin made a line earlier in the movie when he was trying to convince Tommy that they should just leave he was saying like all this weird shit didn't start happening until we actually like started cutting her open like anytime we fucked with her body in some ways the more subtle it was the more subtle weird shit would happen in the movie when they started like actually cutting her open and removing organs that's when shit really ramped up so you probably have a point there too like maybe in some weird way you have to be kind of maybe unwittingly but you still have to like actively like if you're doing something to to the corpse you're basically asking for it this is going to be a comparison that you can't relate to at all mansfield but i want to make it because i thought about it there's a, a villain in an anime um <laughs>
0: Jesus Christ, where are you going with this?
1: uh right, I'll get to it. Specifically, Naruto Shippuden. God damn it. This guy's name is Hidan and his his whole power set is a lot like the Jane Doe corpse's powers. His whole deal is that he worships like this death god and that he's immortal. His body can't be killed. It can be cut up. It can be like beheaded all this shit, but it can't be killed. And that if he tastes the blood of somebody, if he gets their blood into his body in some way, he can then use his own body as like a voodoo doll for their body so that whole scene where austin's dad like begs her like oh let's sacrifice me spare my son and then like almost voodooed all style like all the torture that was done to her body transfers to him it reminded me of that in a lot of ways so i just kind of had to make that make that, com- that comparison
0: well and on that note too one detail that i did forget after he has Taken bone cutters to her rib cage and pull her rib cage out, and he's kind of like examining her internal organs. He does cut his wrist on her like sharp bone edges and bleeds into her a little bit. So I don't know, maybe you're maybe you're onto something there.
1: Maybe he's a Naruto fan and he likes Hidon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I always joked that with my friends, like if I got to create a horror movie, it would be like either a movie about like a ghost possessing killer dolls, kind of like deadly silence or something but what more so I would hope it would be a movie kind of like this this is a movie where like yes you can say that some of this is psychological but honestly no it's just straight up this is a supernatural entity doing this to them and doing this to other people um there's no if ands buts about it whatever hallucinations and anything that they had were all caused by jane doe the thing i did appreciate about this movie is especially with like all the recent movies we have been watching where they're not very straightforward and even black Code's daughter where it's kind of up in the air of whether the devil was actually involved or if it was just all in her head no this is straightforward supernatural entity yeah fucking with them in a morgue when i think of horror movie this is
0: like what kind of pops in my mind totally great movie. I love this movie. This is a movie that like I definitely try to like shove onto other people to check out because it's a good mix of jump scares and creepy atmosphere. It's well written, it's very well acted. It's just a very well put together movie. Like I guarantee you this is a movie that like in 10 years everybody's going to look back on and be like, "Holy shit, like why did we sleep on this movie?"
1: Yeah, so we watched this movie probably about or I did at least about a week or two ago and we haven't had a chance to sit down and record on it until now. Now, due to our busy schedules, especially you Mansfield, um, I know like with the holiday season and working in retail, <laughs> you're you're kind of fucked when it comes to time. Yeah, I saw I watched a movie. It creeped me out for a couple days, and I kind of like okay, that was a fun movie. That was a great horror movie. And then last night, I was like, as I was laying down to sleep, I was thinking like okay, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and we're gonna record. And I was going through my head of like things I wanted to say, and then I started remembering the movie, and then I started remembering like the parts where the corpses would show up, the stitched woman and the guy with with no face who shot himself and the burn victim and like the bells ringing and uh it took me a minute to fall asleep and I had some nightmares so once again thank you Mansfield
0: you're welcome
1: you're thickening my skin
0: <laughs> that's what this whole podcast is about so, that's it. Um, that's another episode in the bag.
1: Props to your brother, Jesse, a.k.a. Party Gator,
0: once yes. again, for the opening and closing music. Yep, check his stuff out on Bandcamp under Party Gator. Um, so, shout out to him. Check us out on social media. Um, we will have Twitter, Facebook available by this time. Um, so, check us out there. Um, definitely download and subscribe to the podcast on all the usual sources, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, etc.
1: Um but otherwise, yeah. Uh Sally, 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 as he says from Texas Chainsaw massacre and uh yeah.
0: So that's it. We will see y'all later. Have a spooptastic time. Most most of all, don't forget
1: Open Up Your Heart and